You know, when you start out with the anatomy of temptation, it takes me back to another kind of anatomy. It's my anatomy and physiology lab that I had in college. And if you're anything like me, maybe you can understand this, it was not a good experience. I didn't like the class, and I didn't like the professor, and I didn't really like the people in the class. It was not good at all. And to make matters worse, it was in the spring semester, and so you can just imagine as the semester wears on, and it's in the middle of March, and you know we've got our laptop open in the lab. Don't tell the professor, but we were trying to stream the NCAA tournament in the middle of the lab, and there were huge windows overlooking the softball field, and College softball is pretty fun to watch if you never have seen it. It's really entertaining. And uh, it was not a good environment for me. And uh, I would like to believe that maybe I've grown as a student, at least somewhat in the years to come. But it, it, it was not a good spot. And how did I pass, you might wonder. Like, Justin, you didn't like the class. You weren't drawn to it. You're trying to watch the tournament instead of dissecting a frog. And you're looking out over the softball field. How did all this work? You know the answer. I had a really good lab partner. <laughs> And so I could just rely on her. She was brilliant and could teach me the things that I should have learned for myself. And uh, as, as I was thinking about that, here's what I realized. The anatomy of temptation is maybe a little bit similar to my experience in the anatomy and physiology lab. Here's how it's similar. I bet most of us don't love to sit around and think about the anatomy of temptation and how Satan comes after us. That's just not the first thing we gravitate to, is it? There's other things that are more exciting to think about, just like there are more uh, things that are more exciting to think about than the left ventricle of a frog's heart. If a frog has a left ventricle, I should probably know that, but I don't. <laughs> here's how it's not similar. Here, here's how it's not similar. In the A&P lab, you can rely on your lab partner to help you get a passing grade, right? When it comes to the anatomy of temptation, you can't lean on somebody else to help you get through it. Right? You've got to understand how Satan is going to tempt you, how he's going to come after you. You've got to understand what God's word says and how to apply it to your life so you can avoid the temptation that Satan brings and walk in holiness. Right? You, you can't have your lab partner do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. Your roommate can't do it for you. You've got to be able to do it yourself. It's a little bit like trying to drive on the snow before the roads have been plowed. You've got to understand what's going on under the hood. Right? You've got to know, is it snow or is it ice? going to change how you drive. You got to know, is this a, a heavy car or a light car? Is it rear wheel drive, front wheel drive, all wheel drive? And if you don't understand what's going on under the hood, you're going to end up either stuck in a snow drift or off in a ditch because you didn't get what was happening under the hood. How we approach temptation is a little bit like that. You've got to know the anatomy of the temptation, what's going on under the hood so that in your spiritual life, you don't end up stuck in a snow drift or off on the side of the road in the ditch. So while it's not the first thing we want to come and think about, it is critically important that we take very seriously the words of Genesis 3 and see this is not just God's story, as the first banner says, it is that, but it's more than that. It's our story as well, and it's helping us to see what is this anatomy of temptation and how do I walk in holiness towards Jesus? And one of the things that we're going to see this morning is that because of Satan's craftiness, this might be the main thing we see, because of Satan's craftiness, we must train ourselves to listen to and obey God's word. Because of Satan's craftiness, we must train ourselves to listen to and obey God's word. And so our outline this morning will be, uh, again, pretty simple. I like to use those simple ones. It's the temptation we'll see first, and then the response, second, and then third, the better way. The temptation, 
the response from Adam and Eve, and then third, the better way forward for us. So if you've got your copy of the scriptures, I hope you'll keep them open all morning as we'll go back to it regularly. Look back at Genesis 3 with me. Look at verse 1. We start seeing the temptation. Let's read there. It says, now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. What's the major identifier of the serpent? That it was more crafty. It was the craftiest creature there was, right? And so that what the text pushes on to us is this clear marker, it's very crafty. Sometimes we want to think about, well, who was the serpent? Well, Revelation 12 says it was Satan, but that's not actually the major focus of Genesis 3. Some of us want to focus on, well, what was the origin of evil? Another interesting and good question, but Genesis 3 tells us to look. It's very crafty. That's what we're supposed to see here. Throughout the rest of Scripture, we'll see this theme continued. Luke 4, we're told that Satan seeks an opportune time to attack us. 1 Peter 5, we read that Satan is prowling around, just always on the precipice, looking for the spot to pounce and get you. So what does that mean that we need to do? It means you've got to be alert, you got to be on your guard. That's what 1 Peter 1 says. That's what Ephesians 6 says. That's what 1 Peter 5 says. That's what 1 Corinthians 16 says. Be alert. Be alert. Have your mind alert. Watch your guard. Be ready. Because there's a crafty serpent who's ready to pounce with a temptation. You see, what happens is the Bible normalizes temptation and spiritual warfare. It normalizes it. It means that temptation is always happening. And in our world, we don't tend to see spiritual warfare and temptation as a normal thing, right? Sometimes we categorize it like as a paranormal activity, like the exorcist, like just kind of otherworldly out there thing, right? And sometimes it's not so much the paranormal, it's just sort of cartoonish. Well, there's this little red cartoon with a pitchfork running around saying ridiculous things in your ear, and it's just sort of other, but it's not normal in my life. And for many of us, it's not even the paranormal or the cartoon figure, but what do we do? We just get so busy going through life that we don't recognize that in the daily grind of our life and the things that we're doing, that Satan is regularly tempting us to be worried about things we ought not be worried about, to think about ourselves more than others, to see the daily needs in front of us instead of the calling that God has on our lives, the good deeds, Ephesians 2.10, that he's prepared before and that we should walk in them. We, we don't normalize temptation and spiritual warfare in our lives the way the Bible does. So this is an important lesson for us to see here. And the first step for all of us, first step, what's, the, what's the, the basic step here? Just begin to recognize that temptation and spiritual warfare is a normal minute-to-minute -minute part of the Christian life. It's the first thing you've got to see. And in the temptation, what exactly does Satan do? He does two things. He questions God's word and God's goodness. His word and his goodness. Look back at Genesis 3 with me. Would you do that? Look at verse 1. Again, what does the serpent say? He says, did God actually say? Pause. He questions his word. Did God actually say, we'll keep going, that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See, the serpent subtly introduces this idea that it's our job to stand as the judge of God's word. It's not a full frontal attack right away. He just subtly introduces the idea that we're to stand as the arbiter, as the judge of what God has to say. 
Now, this, this is really interesting, and uh, if, you, if you weren't here last week, this will be something I want to catch you up to speed on. Satan uses one word for God's name. He uses the word Elohim. It's the strong God, the mighty God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, Elohim created. Throughout Genesis 2 and 3, this is what we talked about the last couple of weeks, is the Bible begins to use this phrase, Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh, the covenant-making God, the relational God who's close to you, who cares about the intimate details of your life. Satan conveniently leaves that part out. He wants to portray a powerful God, but a distant God, who's maybe disconnected from the details of your life, because as he gets disconnected from the details of your life, then it starts to give you a little bit more liberty to go do what you want. So he's beginning even to subtly question God's character here. There's this pattern throughout all history that what does Satan do most fundamentally? He attacks the word of God. Right? There's no book that's been attacked in the history of the world more than the Bible. Right? And in a week and a half, uh, not this Wednesday, but the next one, we're going to have a Christ in cultural conversation session at 7 o'clock where we're going to look at the question, can you trust the Bible? And if you're here and you're grappling with this, like, man, I don't actually know that I believe the Bible. I don't know that it can be trusted. I think there might be errors or contradictions in it. Man, I would invite you to come back to that. Two Wednesdays from now, 7 p.m., we'll be talking about that question. But the reason that Satan wants to attack God's word is because as you get separated from God's word, it leads to errors in your life and false beliefs, heresies, you might say, about everything in the world. That's where it starts. That's why 200 years ago, Bishop J.C. Ryle would say this, ignorance of scripture is the root of every error in religion and the source of every heresy. That's where it gets started, when you get mixed up on what God's word says. You see, to be a disciple means to be a learner. A disciple of Jesus means that I'm learning the words of Jesus and the way of Jesus. Got to learn both, learn the words of Jesus and the way of Jesus. And and that's why it's important that in our, our evening ministries here, the Bible Institute, the Vine, Ablaze, we're going deeper into what does God's word actually say so that together we can come around, look closely at the Bible and learn the words of Jesus and the way of Jesus together. Because we know that God is incomprehensible. We'll never master him. We want him to master us, but we'll never master him. So there's no point in our Christian life where you graduate from needing to be a learner of the words of Jesus and the way of Jesus. Age doesn't matter here. right? You can't study long enough to have mastered it. You've got to stay at it together. Satan doesn't just question God's word. He questions God's goodness. Look back at verse 4 with me. Genesis 3. He continues. There's been a little dialogue. We pick up in Genesis 3, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see the progression here? What started as a subtle attack, you can judge God's word, that's your responsibility, is now a full frontal attack. You will not surely die. Right? There's a progression. It sows seeds of doubt in our own lives. We felt that restart to drift a little bit. And then what would have at the beginning felt crazy to say, all of a sudden is believable. To slow fade, I think is what Casting Crowns used to say like that. And what was, the, what was the temptation that Satan puts? He says, you'll be like God. Isn't that a crazy thing for him to say? They were like God. <laughs> we just talked about that the last two weeks. They were the crown of creation. 
They were image bearers, made in the image and likeness of God. There was no one else in creation like them. He says, no, I've got something better for you. He acts as if God is withholding the good. God's holding back on you. He's not giving you what's really good. Here, let me give you something that will be better than God, better than God's gifts. And the first doctrine in the whole Bible to be outright rejected, what is it? Divine judgment. Divine judgment. See, the rejection of hell, the rejection of the wrath of God, rejection of impending doom and judgment, if we don't turn from our sin and follow Jesus, is not the product of the Enlightenment. It's not the product of postmodernism. It's not the product of any of these modern things. It's a human heart that wants to be king and have things their way and do what they want and reject what God has said. So friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to offer you a loving and kind warning. Hell is a real place and it's filled with real people and real suffering. And the only way to not go to hell is to confess that Jesus is Lord, believe that he came to earth as the son of God, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, Give your life to him in repentance and faith. Turn instead of follow yourself, follow him and trust in him to have a right relationship with God. It can be a little bit upsetting. (laughs) I get it. You think Satan's not at work here? Normalization of spiritual warfare? Guys, if you're a Christian, you know what you need to be reminded of here? The exact same thing. Because hell is a real place. And you've got friends, you've got coworkers, you've got family members that need to be warned. Don't lose sight of this. J.D. Greer, I think, helpfully summarizes this opening aspect of the temptation. Here's what he says. He says, every single time you are tempted, these are the core components of the lie. One, God doesn't really love you. Two, he's not really trustworthy. Three, you know better than God does. Four, don't worry about judgment. Surely there's not an afterlife where people actually are punished forever for their sins. Not that much has changed, has it? Same thing, over and over. Same song, second verse, a little bit louder and a whole lot worse. Keeps coming at us. That's the temptation that's laid out. Right? So what's the response then from Eve when the temptation to doubt God's word and doubt God's goodness comes about? The second point, we'll spend probably the longest amount of time in here, so if I keep going, don't think that I've lost track of where we're at here, but we'll, we'll hang out here for a bit. The overriding theme in Eve's response is a failure to listen to and obey God's word. And Adam's response to it, I shouldn't say just Eve, Adam and Eve. And we kind of want to understand more of what happened, and yet the Bible has a few details, not that many, right? We want to know, okay, the command was given to Adam before Eve was created. Did Adam poorly explain what to do? Did Eve not listen to him? Did they forget to review together? We're not given any of those details, but here's what we are given. They didn't prioritize listening to and obeying the word of God. That's what we're given, and that's what we need to know. They didn't prioritize those things. Kenneth Matthews said it this way. He said, the woman listens to the serpent, the man listens to the woman, and no one listens to God. 
That's a bad mixture right there, right? Listen to God. And when you don't listen to God, you end up inevitably distorting his word. You say things that he didn't say, you fail to say things he did say, and you misrepresent things all along the way. And so in this passage, I think there are three clear distortions of God's word that we'll see. You might want to jot these down. Three clear distortions, and what I want to do here is I want to show you them in the passage, and then I want to show you how these distortions still happen in our life today. Right? I don't want to leave it back in the garden. Let's see what happened there, but let's also see how it happens to us today. Look back at Genesis 3, verse 2. Genesis 3, 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. What are the three distortions we saw right there? Right off the bat, the first distortion, Eve diminishes the privileges. She diminishes the privileges. Eve says, we may eat of the trees. What had God previously said? You may eat freely, have rain over the garden. Eat of any of them except for this one that would be bad for you. It's the difference between the generous delight of giving that God has, and Eve sort of portrays God as a stingy dad withholding the good stuff. Kids, you know this, that if you make your parents look stingy and like they won't let you have the good things that you want and need, it's easier to disobey them in your mind. You're like, well, they're so stingy. They, they're not letting me hang out with my friends. They're not letting me have enough time to play my video games. It's so cold outside. Like, as, as the boss seems stingy, it's easier to justify your disobedience. So Eve diminishes the privileges. Here's the second distortion. She adds to the prohibition. She adds to the prohibition. Eve says, neither shall you touch the tree. But that's not what God said. God said, don't eat of the tree. It makes God more strict, acting as if an inadvertent slip would trigger judgment. And you know how this works too, right? If there's a overly strict homeowners association, you're like, man, I am not doing what they had to say. Like, you take home, you look at the little document there, and you're like, wait, I have to get permission to change the carpet in my basement? <laughs> well, of course they don't say that, but goodness gracious, those regulations are so long, it feels that way. So when you add to the prohibition, it gives you license to not listen to who's the boss and go and do what you want. So she diminishes the privileges, she adds to the prohibition, and the third distortion is she softens the penalty. She softens the penalty. Eve says, lest you die. We don't use that word lest very often, but it means you might die or it's possible that you would die. God says, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And when you soften the penalty, it reduces the urgency. It gives you more authority over your life. Right? Everybody has had at some point in their life an out-of-touch teacher in school who didn't really know the rules, didn't really know what you were up to, and you could sort of sneak one under them and they wouldn't understand how that went. Right? It lets you functionally set the classroom rules because the penalty is softened. I don't know if it will be enforced or not. But when there's somebody who's really on it and they see everything, like, boy, you've got less leeway, you'd better do what they said. This is what Eve sets up, diminished privileges, increased prohibition, softened penalty, all laying a foundation so I can do what I want. I can be the master of my faith, the commander of my soul. 
And all of these distortions, they diminish the goodness and the nearness of God. He's not good, he's not near. It's one of those two. And minimizing his goodness and his nearness means we don't have to take his commands quite as seriously. And what can happen is it can be really easy to sort of smile and nod and say, yes, I see that in the account in Genesis. But then in our own lives, we do the same thing and fail to see it. We have our own acceptable sins where it's okay to eat of the fruit. Don't we? So what I want to do here, Parks, is I just want to get personal on this one. And it might be a little bit touchy for us. It might feel like I'm getting up in your grill a little bit. Let me know or hear from me from my heart here. I don't say this to be angry or jump on anybody or anything like that, but just to say we have to take what the Bible says seriously and think about ways that we do the exact same thing. So we might read a passage like 2 Timothy 2 that says have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they only lead to quarrels. That's what Paul writes. Boy, we don't have any of those in our time, do we? And you think, oh, that doesn't really apply to me. If Paul knew about our situation, he'd tell me to stand and fight. No, he wouldn't. He wrote down exactly what God told him to write down. And he said, don't have anything to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Pretty simple. Or maybe we read Philippians 4, 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. And we think, oh, that doesn't really apply to me. If Paul knew my situation, he'd understand. No, Paul had every reason to know what severe anxiety would look like. But his remedy is to commit to prayer and petition with thanksgiving, and that's when the peace of God guards your heart. And so when you're in that moment, when your heart starts racing and your fingers start tingling and you start to feel that shortness of breath, that overwhelming feeling of impending doom, maybe you just need to go back to the simple song that our kids sing in the vine, Jesus Strong and Kind. And the chorus says, for the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus, Jesus Strong and Kind. Simple truths. Maybe it's Proverbs 3 we read. It says, honor God with your wealth, with the first fruit of all your crops. And we think, oh, that doesn't really apply to me. I don't really have to do that. If Solomon knew the cost of living, the cost of college these days, he'd be a little less cavalier. No, he wouldn't. <laughs> the reality is you're either using the wealth God has entrusted to you to honor him or you're using it to honor yourself. In the words of Jesus, you can't serve both God and money. You have to pick one. Or maybe we read 1 Peter 2. It says, honor the emperor. Oh, that doesn't really apply to me. If Paul knew how crooked our politicians were, he'd emphasize something different. No, he wouldn't. In Acts 4, we see major threats to religious liberty. We see people thrown in jail for proclaiming the gospel. And what do the believers do? They affirm God's sovereignty over unjust rulers, and then they ask for boldness to proclaim even more clearly. That's what we see in the scriptures. So you see what happens here. Just like Eve, we invent all kinds of reasons that it's okay for us to disobey. 
we enter into a cycle of rationalization. And we see that in Eve in verse 6. So look back at the scriptures, Genesis 3, verse 6. Look what we read here. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, sin looks good a lot of times. It looks like the solution to a real problem. It fills a need. Sometimes it even looks like the wise way forward. This is what we have to do here. But this erosion of the foundation has been happening, and it's remarkably quick how that final decision happens. Eve ate it, took to her husband, gave it to him, and he ate You see, what's happened is you've already decided before the moment of temptation what you're going to do. The battle has likely already been won or lost before that moment of temptation. You've decided on the front end if you're going to flee from sexual immorality. You don't have to wait till the moment to decide. You've decided on the front end, I will refuse to participate in gossip. I'm not going to be part of that. If I need to leave with my lunch half eaten, I'm going to do that. I'm not going to participate in that. This is why Ephesians 4 says, don't give the devil a foothold. That's why Romans 13 says, make no provision for the flesh. That's why 2 Timothy 2 says, flee from sin. It's a pre-decision you make that I will listen to and obey God's word. And in Adam and Eve, you saw this erosion happening leading up to. You see, they had community. They had each other. They were together. That's good. But it wasn't biblical community because they weren't leading each other towards holiness. Notice that. They had community, but it wasn't leading towards holiness. They were together, but focused on something besides walking with God. Adam wasn't leading or correcting. Eve is listening to the wrong person, a snake of all people, and then sharing her error with her husband. Both are at fault here. Like sometimes we want to ask, was it more Eve? Was it more Adam? Which which one was it? It's both of them. Because verse 7 leads, then they, the plural. Right, so you you see some passages in the New Testament, like uh, 1 Timothy 2 talks about Eve being deceived. You see Romans 5 tying the disobedience to Adam. It's both. It's both. So it's helpful to, to think about they're together. What, how does this aspect of community tie in? One thing I think that's helpful for me, J.T. English said it this way. He said, community is the context for discipleship, not the content of discipleship. Let me say what that means. The context for discipleship. In community, I learn to follow Jesus. I learn the words and the ways of Jesus. That's where that happens. It's not the content of discipleship, meaning the highest good is not that I would have Christian friends. It's good to have Christian friends. Yes, those are needed. Satan seeks out loner Christians who are disconnected from the body and attacks them just like a lion would attack an animal that's separated from the herd. That's when you're vulnerable and weak. But you need more than Christian friends because community is not the content of discipleship. It's the context for discipleship where within these good Christian friendships, we follow Jesus together. There's a key difference right there. And Adam and Eve mixed that up. Maybe another way of thinking about this, your friends your biblical community needs to have two things, proximity and access to your life, right? You can give somebody access to your life. I'm going to tell you everything about me. But if they're four states away, here's what's going to happen. 
you're not gonna intentionally lie to them, but you might misrepresent a situation because your own eyesight is skewed a little bit. And if they're four states away, it's really difficult for them to see that and speak truth into your life in a helpful way. So they've gotta be close. But if you have only proximity, maybe the people in this room, they're close to you, but they don't have access to your life, they don't know what's really going on, it doesn't matter how close they are to you because without access, they can't speak into your life and help you follow Jesus together. You have to have both proximity and access. Now, as soon as I say that, I know what many of you are thinking. It is scary for me to be known by others. That's scary, isn't it? Like for people to really know what's going on in my life, not just the Sunday morning face, not just the good meal that I can cook over the Super Bowl, to really know the struggles, the temptations I'm facing, how I'm not defeating them. That is scary. But what's even scarier, even scarier than that, is that we wouldn't get our path corrected and follow Jesus, and we would risk facing his judgment. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but it's, think, it's thinking about this like surgery. Yeah, it's scary to go into surgery, but it's the only path to healing and wholeness. That's why God has given us the church. Yeah, it's scary to know others. It's scary to be known by others, but it's the path God has given to your healing and to your wholeness to go deeper into the gospel and follow Jesus together. That's why we talk about all the time, growing through relationships. It's God's ordained means for us to grow as Christians. Adam and Eve, in community, but not necessarily following Jesus. And when they distort and disobey God's words, what happens next? Look back at verse seven. They're filled with guilt and shame. Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What happens? Their eyes are open, they see their guilt. And because they're guilty, shame follows and they try to cover it up. You might say it this way, they use God's world to hide from God's presence. Instead of seeking their joy in the presence of God, they use the gifts that God has given them to cover themselves and hide from his presence. And isn't that what we still do? We take the things God has given us, the good gifts, and we put them right in front of us and we allow those things to distract us and hide us from his presence because I'm pursuing those things more than him and they keep me from getting to him because I have to have something else. It's more urgent in my life. Instead of ruling and reigning to glorify God, having dominion over the earth, cultivating the garden, to glorify God, they rule and reign to preserve themselves. What, how can we use what God has given for self-preservation instead of God's glorification? It's easy to see how we do the exact same thing too. We take the gifts God's given us. How can I use this to preserve myself, my life, the vision of the good life that I dream up instead of seeing these good gifts from God as an opportunity to be just a steward along the way, a conduit of grace, not a cul-de-sac, but a pipeline passing them on so that God would be glorified. I don't make the same mistake. The reality is if we were to stop the sermon right here in verse seven, it would be a very dark picture. There's not a lot of hope here, is there? And next week, we'll get to some of that, but I'm not gonna stop here. I'm not gonna do that to you. That'd be cruel. 
I'm gonna open up the rest of the scriptures and see our third point, the better way. Because the rest of the Bible gives us a much better way to think about answering these temptations that Satan brings to us. The overriding theme of the rest of scripture is train yourself to listen to and obey God's words with God's people through the power of God's spirit. Listen to and obey God's words through God's power with God's people. It's all over the Old Testament. Here's one example, Deuteronomy 32. Think about this. Moses writes Genesis through Deuteronomy, five books. And near the very end of Deuteronomy, last words are lasting words. What does he say right at the very end of what he writes? Take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you but your very life. I know it's going to feel like an empty word. I know it's going to feel like there's something more urgent. No, this is your very life. Or take the Psalms. How do the Psalms open? Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Or take the longest of all the Psalms, Psalm 119, 176 verses. This is pretty cool to see. It's 176 verses, 22 stanzas, eight verses each. The entire thing is about the word of God. Do you know how many letters are in the Hebrew alphabet? 22. And every single stanza starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, all of it telling you about the word of God. So the longest chapter in the whole Bible is meant to say that your life from A to Z, beginning to end, is all about the word of God. That's pretty amazing. Do this for me. Grab your Bibles, flip over to Luke 3. If you're in the Pew Bible, it's page 859. Luke 3, Pew Bible, page 859. I love this. The, at the very end of Luke 3, we're getting the final stages of this genealogy of Jesus. And at the very end of Luke 3, who does Luke connect Jesus to? Last two phrases. The son of Adam, the son of God. He's connecting Adam to Jesus. There's supposed to be, there's a typology, we might say. There's a relationship there. And as soon as he connects Adam to Jesus, what does he enter into? The temptation in the wilderness. And just think for a second about the difficulty of this temptation. You've got Adam in a garden paradise, Jesus in a desert wilderness. You've got Adam filled with every good thing imaginable. Jesus has fasted for 40 days, hadn't had anything to eat in over a month Jesus facing ongoing temptations throughout the 40 days is what Luke 4 tells us. And then at the end, it gets more intense. Adam didn't even face the temptation head on. It was his wife who took it, and he just passively sat by and said, hey, give it a try, honey, see how it goes. See, Jesus' temptation was way harder. And what does Luke want you to see? The most common phrase throughout Luke 4 is Jesus' response, it is written. When the temptation comes, Jesus had pre-committed to listen to and obey God's word, to know what it says. He would say, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He says that 
I just want to pause because I like food. I like it a lot. I don't miss many meals. And if I do miss a meal, do you know what I do? I quickly make a plan to do something about it. (laughs) Maybe you can relate to that. But I fear that we don't often hunger for God's word like we do for food for our belly. That's what Jesus says. It is critical. This is no empty word for you. It's your very life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So given our generally weak hunger for God's word, let me quickly outline a five-step game plan for you against temptation. Five-step game plan for you against temptation. And I hope if you're writing this down uh, that you'll just see right at the outset, there is nothing novel here. There's nothing new here. This is the ordinary means of grace, things you should have heard and known for quite a while. But perhaps you need to be reminded of some old truths. So the first thing, you see it on the screen, is you've got to know God's word. That's the first step in your game plan against temptation. See, our world has a thousand self-help solutions that start with everything besides the word of God. You've got to go back to the scriptures and make that the foundational point for your life. Psalm 119.11, we talked about the, the whole chapters about the word of God. Verse 11, the psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. I've hidden it in my heart. I've meditated on it. I've memorized it. And so maybe the action point for you this morning is you just need to start committing some of God's word, brief snippets to memory so that you can meditate on them because you are pre-deciding in the moment of temptation, I will listen to and obey the word of God. You need to look to Philippians 2. Do all things without grumbling or complaining, even trying to get through the Kroger checkout line. And so you just put that to memory. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. And just let that play and repeat through your brain and let it sink into your soul. Or maybe it's Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I don't feel like serving her today. I don't feel like loving her today. I don't want to lay down my life for her today. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Love your wives as Christ loved the church gave himself up for her. Maybe say, Justin, I've got a whole variety of temptations. I can't pin it down to one simple one like this. That's okay, go to James 4. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. So whatever that temptation comes, you immediately go back to submit yourself to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Submit to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. It's critical you start by knowing the word of God. I referenced that book earlier, Habits of Grace, super helpful book, and looking at some short passages that are great for you to memorize. I think there's an appendix with like 10 easy memory verses that are great for every Christian. That'd be a resource I'd point you to. Second, not just know God's word, know your weakness, right? What was the first thing we read about Satan in Genesis 3-1? He's crafty, he prowls around, he's seeking an opportune time. He knows when you are weak. Do you know when you're weak? Maybe there are certain triggers, we might call them, that make it difficult for you to fight sin or more difficult. Maybe you don't like the word triggers, just use the language of Luke 4. He's seeking an opportune time. It's basically the same thing. So I would ask you, where is the sin of gluttony most attractive to you? Where is that? Where are you weakest against sexual temptation? What are the stressors that move you to consider your needs ahead of the needs of others? Is there a time? Is there a place? 
Are there certain people that you tend to be around? Is there a mood that you feel coming across yourself? Know your weaknesses. And it might mean I need to stop hanging out with that person or going to that place or listening to that podcast or that radio show because it exploits my weaknesses. Pastor Craig Groeschel said it this way. He said, why resist a temptation tomorrow if I can eliminate it today? If I know I'm with those people in that place, I'm gonna be tempted in a way that I'm really weak? Well, then don't go there. Know your weakness, alter your path, build a game plan that's built around listening to and obeying the word of God. Knowing your weaknesses is critical for that. Third, rely on the Spirit. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 13 says, for if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. How do you put to death the deeds of the flesh? By the Spirit, right? Jesus didn't die for your sins so that you could merely manage it and keep it in a nice little cage off to the side. No, he died for your sins so that you would put sin to death. And how do you put it to death? By the power of the Spirit, Jesus, in John 16, says that it's better to have the Spirit inside you than Jesus beside you. That's an amazing thing. Right? I would love to have Jesus walk around and be a constant little voice right there that literally the Son of God right next to me always said, nope, don't do that, remember I'm better, all this. He says it's better to have the Spirit inside you than Jesus beside you, John 16, 7. And far too often, I think we try and fight sin without thinking about the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Yes, know the word of God, but go to the Spirit and ask for his help. I'm weak. I feel this temptation coming at me. I want to do the right thing, but I kind of want to do the wrong thing. Spirit, I need your help. Don't fight alone. The Spirit is there. He wants to see you obey. He's striving with you against sin. Praying with groanings too deep for words to understand when you don't even know what to say. Rely on the power of the Spirit. Fourth, build biblical community. Build biblical community. So yes, I'm knowing God's word and I'm knowing my weaknesses. I'm relying in the Spirit, but I'm also recognizing that the church together, biblical community, is how God has designed us to walk together in holiness, that we grow through relationships. We read in Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We bear those burdens together. That's a game plan against temptation. Proverbs 24, it gets even more aggressive. The, the proverb, proverbist? I don't know what the right term is there. He says, hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. It gets more aggressive. It's not just lock arms and bear the burden. It's like, hey, you need to see the guy who's not here, who hasn't been here in a month or six months, and go check on him. Go knock on his door. What's going on, man? How are you doing? How's your family? Hold him back from stumbling into the slaughter. That's the idea of knowing others and being known by others. And it's in this context of biblical community where, like I said, I know others, I'm known by them, that somebody can say to you, brother, Sister, I have been there. That season of life was super hard. I've walked part of that road with you. The struggle is real. You're not crazy. You're not making it up. You're not inventing things. You're not just a super weak person, although Satan wants to tell you that. This is really hard, and I'm gonna walk with you, and I'm gonna love you through this. And we might need to get some professional help. But whatever it is, I'm gonna stick with you 
because I know that Jesus always sticks with me and for me to live out the gospel means that I will never give up on you because he would never give up on me. You gotta build biblical community. Fifth and lastly, you run to Jesus. You know his word and you know your weakness. You rely on the spirit, you build biblical community, but you run to Jesus. What did we just sing? Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free, yet not I, but Christ in me. Maybe you just want to go back to Hebrews 12 and just sink your teeth into this rich stake of God's word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight that so easily entangles, and the sin as well. And let us run with endurance the race marked out for us. Let us look to Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, that's beautiful. I look around, I see the cloud of witnesses around me, the biblical community. I lay aside the sin. I know my weaknesses, I know God's word, and I use those to lay it aside. But I look to Jesus because he has gone through suffering worse than any suffering I've encountered. His temptation was greater than any temptation I've ever encountered or will encounter. And I look to him before I sin because that is the power, it is the motivation to avoid sinning. But I also run to him after I sin because I'm preaching the gospel to myself knowing that there are times that I will step into sin when I shouldn't, and I realize that he came to this earth and lived a perfect life that I couldn't live to be the perfect sacrifice to pay for all my sins, the sins you don't know that you're gonna commit yet, that you think are too terrible to tell anybody. He already paid for those. And I look to him and I run to him and say, Jesus, I need you because there's no other way to deal with this sin. Whether you're a Christian, you need to keep doing this as you have been for years, or you're not a Christian, and for the very first time this morning, you say, Justin, I know that I'm guilty before a holy God. I'm separated from him, and hell is a real place that I think I'm headed to, and I know that Jesus died on the cross to forgive me of my sins and bring me back into a relationship with him. You run to Jesus whether you're a Christian or not. That's what you've got to do. That's the call. This is the power to live out the Christian life. We delight in his finished work to delight in the gospel. So we're gonna to go to communion here in a second and I just want you to think over what has the spirit been saying to you? Where have you failed to listen to and obey God's word? What does that look like? And Satan wants to beat you up with guilt, telling you you never change. You're gonna stay in these patterns forever. You can have a good couple weeks, but I'll get you by the end of February you're not really gonna change. Or maybe tell you it's not that bad. Yeah, that preacher was laying it on thick, but you know you're actually all right. You don't actually have to repent. You don't need to call up that person that you've wronged. Man, I don't know what that looks like for you, but don't sit under the preaching of God's word and just stay stagnant. Run to Jesus, repentance and faith, and do whatever he tells you to do. We'll give you some silence minute or two, and then after that, you're free to take communion and remember Jesus on that cross, his body broken, his blood poured out as a sacrifice for you to pay the penalty for your sins. Let's pray.